The reading today is from Isaiah 9, 2 and 4 through 7, and Matthew 1, 18 through 23. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. Morning, Whitefields. Always look forward to Sunday. Always look forward to gathering with you guys. Um, today is the first Sunday of Advent. It's the first Sunday of December. It's also the first Sunday of Advent. Now, Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, right? The word Advent comes from the Latin phrase, which is Adventus Domini, which means the coming of the Lord. And historically in the church, Advent is a time when we focus in on the coming of Christ, both his first coming as a baby in Bethlehem and his second coming when he comes to rule and reign at some point in the future. So it's a time when we look back to the coming of Christ and a time when we look forward to the coming of Christ, but it's all about the coming of Christ. So for the four Sundays in Advent, uh, we will be starting a new teaching series, taking a break from what we're doing. We will pick it up after this, but we're starting a new teaching series. It's called A New Day Dawning. And we're going to be talking about the coming of Christ, both his first coming and his second coming. And one of the traditions of Advent is the lighting of the Advent wreath, uh, the candles on the wreath. And what we do is each Sunday up until Christmas, one more candle is lit. And this symbolizes how Jesus comes as the light of the world, dispelling the darkness. And actually, a lot of people don't know this, but each of these candles has a name. Um, and and they, they carry a significance, a symbolism, and a meaning. And so each, of, uh, so each week of Advent, what we're going to do, the way this series will work, is we're going to be studying the different uh, aspects of the coming of Christ, which are represented by the candles. So the first candle is called the prophecy candle, or the candle of hope. So today we're going to be talking about the prophecies and the hope surrounding the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. So if you would, please bow your head with me and let's pray as we get into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have come, and we thank you that you are coming again. 
Lord, we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for your kingdom that is here now and is yet to come. And Lord, this morning we ask that you would give us open ears to hear your word. We ask that you give us hearts that are good soil to receive your word. And Lord, we pray that you would produce much good fruit in our lives. Lord, produce much good fruit in our church for your glory, for your kingdom. And Lord, we ask that you would accomplish all that work in us today that you desire to. Lord, we pray that your word would be fruitful in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. We read this in Romans chapter 15. It says, again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles will hope. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So in talking about hope today, first I would like to talk about the object of our hope, then I would like to talk about the basis of our hope, and finally I'd like to talk about the dawning of our hope. So you note takers who like outlines, there you go. Object of our hope, the basis of our hope, and the dawning of our hope. So let's begin, the object of our hope. You know, in our, in our society that we live in today, in our culture, the word hope, right, it just gets thrown around all the time. It's so nebulous. What, what does it really mean? I mean, uh, it's used in everything from marketing to political campaigns, but it's rarely ever defined for us. You know, probably most of you know this image, if I can get Tim to put it up there. <laughs> probably most of you have seen this image. Uh, no matter what you think about it, my point is this, that we see marketing campaigns using the word hope or political campaigns that use the word hope, but they never seem to really define for us what it is that they're talking about. What is this hope? What exactly do they want us to hope in? What exactly do they want us to hope for? You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most well-known chapters in the Bible. And uh, it's, it's a chapter about love, right? It's a chapter which starts out, love is patient, love is kind. We all, we're, most of us are familiar with this, you know? And, and that, that well-known chapter in the Bible, the 13th verse of it is, is maybe one of the most well-known verses in the, in the entire Bible. It says, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, the thing about really well-known Bible verses is that people get so used to hearing them, right? They, they become so common in the mind of the general population that they can tend to lose their original intended meaning and weight and significance. For example, before I became a Christian, I knew a few Bible verses, you know, uh, such as, you know, every non-Christian person's favorite Bible verse, which is, don't judge so that you will not be judged. Now, uh, what that verse meant to me as a person who wasn't a Christian, was not what Jesus meant when he said it, right? For me, that meant that nobody, especially not religious people, that nobody had the right to say anything to me about what I did or said or my attitudes and tell me that I was wrong or that I needed to change. Because if they did, I, I took this verse to mean that then God would punish them for their sins because they had broken the one rule of Christianity which I apparently believed to be you're not allowed to tell dumb teenagers that they're sinning, right? So that was, that was my uh, take on it. But obviously that's not what Jesus uh, was saying when he said those words. Uh, Jesus was talking about religious people who are hypocrites. But again, the point is that that's an example of how there are these Bible verses that a lot of people know, but they don't really comprehend what they're really talking about. 
In the same way, this verse about faith, hope, and love, it's so well known, right? But for many people, although they know the verse and they think it's nice and they nod their head, I think that many of them don't really comprehend the message of that verse or the message of the chapter in which it's found. Uh, because in the culture we live in, right, it's, there's such a tendency. You meet people who will say stuff like, you know, hey, faith, hope, and love. All that matters is that you have faith, you know. Have faith, hope, and love. But it doesn't necessarily matter what you have faith in. You just need to have faith in something. Maybe you should have faith in yourself. And you should have hope, you know. Whatever gives you hope, anything, that's good. As long as you have hope, you need a reason to get up in the morning. You need a reason to keep pressing on. You know, even sick people get better if they have hope, right? You just need something to hold on to, a reason to get out of bed in the morning. But in the context of the Bible, when it, when it talks about faith, hope, and love, we need to see that it's not talking about just three generalities, positive things, like noble attributes. It's not just talking about positive thinking and good vibes. It's talking specifically about faith in Jesus, hope in Jesus, and the love of God which we can only know through Jesus. So faith, hope, and love in and of themselves are, are really nothing. They must have an object, right? There must be something or someone that you place your faith in, that you have hope in. And my brother-in-law, he's a big San Diego Chargers fan, and, uh, and he had a lot of faith in the San Diego Chargers going into this NFL season, right? But no matter how much faith he had in the Chargers, it was the object of his faith. The Chargers, that was the, that was the problem. He had the wrong object of his faith. Because more important than having a lot of faith, right, is having faith in the right thing or the right person. The point is this, the object of your faith is of utmost importance. The object of your hope is also of utmost importance. In our, in our modern American society, right, we, we hear these words so often, faith, hope, and love, and people say, you know, you got to have faith. But the question is, well, faith in what? Um, and the answer that comes back most of the time is, well, I don't know, have faith in yourself. If the Bible would say to that, they would say, no, whatever you do, don't have faith in yourself. That your heart is desperately wicked. Y your motivations are rarely pure. Do not have faith in yourself. Uh, then people would say, well, if you're not going to have faith in yourself, well, at least have faith in humanity. Again, what does the Bible say to that? The Bible says, no, don't have faith in humanity. Have you seen their record? It's not very good. Don't have faith in humanity. It's terrible. But then people threw out the word hope in the same way. You got to have hope. Hold on to hope. But hope in what? Well, hope in, in progress. That things are getting better. That they will get better. Hope in the goodness of, of human beings. But then... But then really, what are you hoping for if you're hoping in those things? What is ex exactly that I hope will happen as a result of human progress or technology or progress in society? Because think about this. Even if we succeed in getting rid of racial tension and war and all the things that plague our society, even if we can make awesome computers that share information quickly, even if we can land a man on Mars, right? Well, then what? What have we gained? Human life will still basically be the same, which is a certain number of decades, and then you die, right? 
Uh, Mars landing or no Mars landing, rich or poor, people live for a certain number of decades, and then at some point, sickness and death overcomes them. It's just a matter of time, but it will overcome you. Death will swallow you up. And this is why Jesus poises the ultimate existential question, right? He says this, What does it profit a man? What does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world but yet loses his own soul? What do you gain if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? In other words, what good is hope if it is hope in this life only? That's a shallow hope because this life, no matter how good you can make it, it is a drop of water in the ocean. And no matter how hard you fight it, It's only a matter of time before it will be overcome by sickness and swallowed up by death. So the point is this. We need a hope that is more profound than simply making our few years here on earth more comfortable or more interesting. God's word says the exact same thing, actually. It says this. If we have hoped in this life only, then of all people we are most to be pitied. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. So then... What is the object of our hope as Christians? What is it exactly that we're hoping in? What is it exactly that we're hoping for? You know, as we've been studying over the past few months through the the book of Genesis, uh, one thing that we've seen over and over, one thing we've really tried to emphasize is that the Bible is not a random collection of stories that somehow are loosely related to God. But the Bible is a story. It is a unified story. It is a narrative, and it tells a story. It tells a story about a person. The Bible is the story of the Messiah. The whole Old Testament, beginning in Genesis, it's not simply the story of the world, but it's the story of the Messiah specifically. You know, that's why there are a lot of things that happened in world history that the Bible says nothing about. And people get upset. Well, why doesn't the Bible even talk about that? Well, well, here's the reason. Because the Bible is very much focused on telling one story. The story of the Messiah. In the beginning of the Bible, what's the scenario? The scenario is this. God created a perfect world. A, a wonderful world. A paradise full of beautiful creatures. And it was characterized by peace and harmony. And God created a man and a woman. He created them to know him and to be known by him, to love him and to be loved by him. And they experienced that kind of fellowship with God. But what happened was the man and the woman rebelled against God. Think about this. They they chose to believe the lies of Satan rather than the word of God. And at that moment, sin entered into the world and sin penetrated everything. It brought with it a curse. And God's good creation, God's intention was corrupted. But at that moment, what happened? God spoke into human history. God spoke and he made a promise that he would deal with the problem of sin. And he would provide redemption from the curse of sin. In Genesis 3.15, God speaks and says that he will send a man... A man who will be born as the seed of a woman. That's, that's some very specific language. It means that this man will have a mother but not a father in an earthly sense. And this man will come to defeat Satan, sin, and death. He will come as the redeemer of mankind, the redeemer of all creation. This verse is referred to as proto-evangelion, which is a Greek term which simply means the first gospel. It's the first announcement 
of the gospel message in the entire Bible. It's the promise of the Messiah, which is really what the rest of the Bible is all about, right? So then throughout the Old Testament, again, keeping with this idea of the Old Testament serves to bring about the Messiah. Think about this. We see foreshadowings continually through the Old Testament of the Messiah. We see Moses who sets God's people free, who leads God's people out of slavery and into the land of God's promises. We see a priestly system of worship where a priest makes intercession before God on behalf of the people. We see a sacrificial system where a priest will make atonement for the sins of the people by making a substitutionary sacrifice of a blameless animal to meet the righteous requirements of the law, that the wages of sin is death, and that sin can only be washed away by the blood of one who's pure and blameless. But even then, it makes it clear that the people were told that these sacrifices were not enough to truly wash away their sins. They covered their sins, but it couldn't wash away their sins. In other words, there was always a need, there was always a felt need for a true and ultimate sacrifice, one beyond the sacrifices in their system, which could actually wash away sin once and for all. And then there were kings and leaders, some who led according to God's heart and some who didn't. And there were prophets who spoke the word of God and they proclaimed that God would come, that the Messiah would come. And that when he did, when the Messiah came, he would establish what? He would establish a kingdom characterized by righteousness and justice, a kingdom that would never end. It would be eternal. And the Messiah would be a true king. And he would always act according to the heart of God and the will of God. He would always do God's will. In fact, the prophets even went beyond that. And they promised that this ultimate king, the Messiah, would be none other than God himself, God with them. So when we read, as we did in our reading today, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, that an angel appears to Joseph and he tells him, your, your fiance Mary, she's pregnant with a child, and this child is Emmanuel. And you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph knew what that meant. Because that came into a context of, of a people who for thousands of years of history, that this had been the central feature of their history, of their culture, of their society. The central feature was this hope of the Messiah. That God was one day going to send this one. And he would be God with them. He would be the true and ultimate liberator. He would be the true and ultimate priest, the true and ultimate teacher, the true and ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the people. To set them free from their sins, restoring them to a right relationship with God, and ushering in a kingdom of peace and justice and true human flourishing. Jesus was the object of their hope, and Jesus is still the object of our hope today as Christians. You know, what's interesting to think about is this. We still share in that same ancient hope for the coming of the Messiah that they did at that time. That's why Advent is such an interesting time because we focus on that he has come and that he is coming. And we remember that actually we share that same hope that those people had before Jesus came the first time. And you know why? It's because we still today live in a world that is under a curse. 
If you've been outside for five minutes, you know that, right? We live in a world where there's suffering and sickness and pain, where there's heartache, where there's injustice, where things aren't right. We look at things, we hear the news, and we shake our heads and we say, that's just not right. It shouldn't be this way. It's not right, you know? You know, we live in a world where, where, again, no matter how hard we try, our lives are, are never going to be anything more than simply a few decades. But eventually, sooner or later, they will be overcome by sickness and death. You know, I don't know if you've looked at the statistics on death, but they're pretty severe, you know. Ten out of ten people die. Those are pretty bad odds that we're looking at here. Uh, that's, that's interesting, right? Because this is actually why people were confused by Jesus, You know, sometimes we have a tendency to say, oh, you know, why didn't more people in Jesus' day see that he was the Messiah? Well, well, there's actually a good reason for that, and here's what it was. Their expectation, their hope, which was actually a very biblical hope, was that when the Messiah came, he would come to, uh, you know, establish the eternal kingdom of God on earth, of righteousness and justice, that, that he would defeat Satan, sin, and death. But now here we are, 2,000 years later, Jesus came, the Messiah came, and he left. And we're still dealing with the effects of sin. We still have sickness in the world. We still have death. We're still dealing with the curse. So the question is, did Jesus defeat Satan, sin, and death when he came? Did he really establish the kingdom of God here on earth? And if he did, then why is there still sickness and injustice and death? Why are there still tragedies in the news? Why are there still things that happen and we look around and we say, it's not right? When you read the New Testament, you read that the Apostle Paul, he makes this statement a few times, that Jesus Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews. Well, here's why. This is exactly why he's a stumbling block to the Jews. This is what Paul's talking about. Because their feeling was, how can Jesus really have been the Messiah How can he really be the one that we've been waiting for, the one that was prophesied, if there's still sin in the world, if there's still problems? If the Messiah was supposed to put an end to sin and all of that stuff, then why are there still issues? Didn't he establish the kingdom of God? Why don't we see these things being completely eradicated? That's a very valid question, actually, and there there is a very valid answer. The answer is this, that God's plan of salvation was much bigger than only making the world a better place. And that's important. God's plan of salvation and redemption is more than just making the world a better place. Because here's the thing that that we have to realize. Uh, We often think about the effects of sin being those things which happen to us or uh, those things which happen around us. But we forget that because of, of the fall, uh, sin has corrupted us as well. Right? The problems of this world are not only the things which happen to us or happen around us, but in fact we are part of the problem. Right? There isn't just sin in the world. There is sin inside of me. There is sin inside of you. We are part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. You're part of the problem. So not only does God need to redeem the world, God needs to redeem me. And God needs to redeem you. So here's what God did. His plan was bigger than what people expected it to be. And, and isn't that really 
usually the case, right? That God's plans are much more expansive and comprehensive than, than what we think or expect or come up with on our own. And God's plan was this. First, he would redeem souls. And then he would come again to redeem everything else. Right? So Jesus came 2,000 years ago. God became a man. He lived a perfect death. He announced and proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. He died a sacrificial death, and he rose from the dead on the third day. Why? What was he doing? Well, well, what he was doing was he was opening up the way to the Father. He was providing the means for you to be reconciled to God, for your sins to be forgiven, for you to be set free from bondage to sin and vice and vanity. He provided the means for you to be born again in your spirit, for your soul to be saved and hidden with God in Christ so that you can have eternal life. But then he left, right? But he left with the promise that he would come again. And when he returns, he will come as king. And it's then that he will fulfill all of those messianic promises. It's then that he will judge the nations. And he will create a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, it says that the old will pass away. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more. And neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And it says, he who sits on the throne declares, behold, I make all things new. That is the second coming. And so this Advent season, we look back to the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago. We share in that ancient hope for the Messiah to come. And we, we share in the, the, uh, the fullness, the desire for the fullness of the kingdom to come. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, We were saved in the hope that we, along with all of creation, will be set free from bondage. To corruption, that we will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He says, it is this hope that we wait patiently for. You know, God's plan to redeem the world, again, it had two parts. First, he came to redeem souls, and then he will come again to redeem all creation. And the question is often asked, and I think rightly so, that why has he waited so long to come back? Why would he make us wait a couple thousand years before coming back to establish this kingdom in fullness? Why hasn't he come back to redeem the world yet? And here's why. And it's a good reason. Because there are still more souls that need to be saved, that he wants to save. Because this in-between time, right, between the first coming of Christ and before the second coming of Christ, this is what we refer to as the dispensation of grace. This is the time when the grace of God has been made available to all people. This is the day of salvation. This is the window of time when the door is open for all people to come to God, to be saved from their sins, to receive the promise of eternal life, to receive the righteousness of God. This is the time of the harvest, when God is gathering all those who will be saved. Because when Christ comes again in his second coming, he will come to judge the nations. When Christ comes again, that window of salvation will be closed. And the fact is, we don't know when he will return again. We don't know how long this window of time, this window of salvation is going to be open. We don't know how long it's going to last. And that's why there is an urgency to the gospel. 
That's why there is an urgency for the people of God to preach the gospel and do the work of the kingdom. And that's why we thank God that he actually waited this long to return, right? So that we too could be saved, so that we too could be brought into this kingdom. You know, the reason Jesus hasn't returned yet is because there are more people he wants to bring in. There are more souls he wants to save and redeem. And so the object of our hope is Jesus Christ, the redeemer of our souls, the redeemer of all things. And we long for that time when our hope will be a reality, when redemption will be complete. So Jesus is the object of our hope, but we also must consider what is the basis of our hope. The basis of our hope is this, that God has been faithful to keep all of his promises, and therefore we can be sure that God will keep all of his promises to us that have yet to be fulfilled. Did you know there are over 300 predictions in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah, which were already fulfilled by Jesus in his first coming? 300 Right? That he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would come out of Egypt, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, he would heal the sick, he would die on a cross. Predictions that were already fulfilled. Jesus, or God made promises to people throughout the Old Testament and he kept them. And what that means to us is that he's a faithful God. And we hope in him, and our hope is based, it's founded on the, the promises which we have already seen him fulfill. It's founded on his character, that he is faithful, that he's a God who does what he says he will do. And because of that, our hope in him is what we call a sure hope. It's not just wishful thinking, it's not just, well, I really hope that works out, but it's a sure hope. You know, 1 Peter chapter 1, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It also says this in in Hebrews chapter 6. It says, This hope we have is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. The basis of the hope that we have in, in Jesus, the basis of the hope that we have in the promises of God is the very character of God. That he has always been faithful to keep his promises and we know because of that that he will be faithful to keep all of his promises which are still yet to come. So, so Jesus is the object of our hope. The character, or sorry, the character of God is the basis of our hope. And finally, let me end by speaking briefly about the dawning of our hope. And this is the part that gets me really excited, actually. So I hope you're excited about this too, the dawning of our hope. You know, the title we gave to this teaching series is A New Day Dawning. In Romans chapter 13, Paul makes this very interesting statement. He says, in Romans uh, 13, verse 12, he says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Now, what Paul's saying here is this. The day is coming, the night is waning. Where that puts us at, what that's saying is that, that where we are at spiritually in the history of the world is dawn. This is dawn. That's where we're at right now. It's the in-between in period, right? Between two kingdoms, right? It's, the, it's after the first coming of Christ, before the second coming of Christ. This is dawn. This is where we are at right now. The day is near. It's coming. The night is almost gone. It's far spent. That means they're both happening at the same time. 
It's, it's, it's not day yet, but it's not night either. If, if you've ever been around dawn, you know that it's, it's not really day, it's not really night. It is both at the same time. The day is coming, the night is leaving, but at dawn, they're both there. When Jesus came, his message was what? He said, repent. This is the first thing he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's the same wording that Paul uses when he says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. That means it's coming. That means that right now, it is dawn. The day is coming, the night is leaving, but at dawn, they're both there at the same time. And that is the perfect description of where we're at right now. We live in a time and place where there are two kingdoms present at the same time. We live in a tension between these two kingdoms, between the old kingdom, which is passing away, its days are numbered, and the new kingdom, which God is bringing in, and we can see it on the horizon, we see it coming closer, it's here now, but only in part, it will come in fullness yet in a time to come. And so we live in this tension, right? Where we who have been redeemed through faith in Jesus, we experience aspects of both kingdoms simultaneously. We're simultaneously king, uh, citizens of the kingdom of this world, right? That we're born into. But we're also citizens of the kingdom of God. We experience aspects of our redemption here and now, but we don't yet experience the fullness of that redemption. But we will. We still deal with the curse of sin. We still live in a broken world, in broken bodies. But the dawn, it's dawn. That means the day is coming. So what is this hope that we have in Jesus? It is the hope, really, of the kingdom of God. And, and what we see is that in the time we live in, it's like dawn. The hope of the kingdom of God is something which we experience now in part, but something we look forward to experiencing in fullness in a time soon to come. That means that the hope that we have in Christ, the hope of the kingdom of God, it is hope for today. It is hope for our lives here and now. And it is hope for the future. It's hope for eternal life. It's, it's the hope of glory yet to come. You know, but part of this hope we hold on to is this, that a new day is indeed dawning. That the darkness is fading. And that on the horizon, we can see the new day coming. The kingdom of God. Uh, eternal life where things are made new. All things are made new. Where things are made right. Where life is lived the way it was meant to be lived. And we who have been born again in Christ, we experience that now in part. But the day is coming when we will experience it in fullness. And like a new day dawning, this time is inevitable. Its coming is inevitable. You can't stop it. With every passing moment, we are racing towards it. So for those of us who are believers, how should this affect us? It should give us a sense of hope, but it should also give us a sense of urgency. Because the new day is dawning. The, the dawn doesn't last forever. There's an urgency to it. That window of salvation will be closed and we need to be about the work of God who is not yet done saving souls. And for anybody here today, anybody who hears this, who, who has not yet surrendered their life to Christ, who has not yet put their full hope in Jesus Christ as the salvation for their soul, has stopped trusting in themselves and put their full hope in Christ and been born again, my message for you today is this. That Jesus is the only legitimate object 
of your hope. Every other hope, every other thing that claims to be hope is nothing more than wishful thinking. It's going to ultimately leave you disappointed and disillusioned. But I encourage you, place your hope in him as the redeemer of your soul, as the redeemer of all things. And God's word says that no one who hopes in him, no one who places their hope in him will be put to shame. Today is the day of salvation. This is a window of time and someday that window will be closed. So I urge you, come to Christ today. Come to Christ anew today because the kingdom of God is at hand and a new day is dawning. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can see the new day dawning. We can see it coming on the horizon. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in Jesus. But Lord, as we are in this place, let it give us a sense of urgency. Let us see that this is a window of time and we don't know how long it will be open. Lord, let us be about the work of the kingdom. Lord, I pray for anybody here who has yet to give their life to you. Lord, I pray that they would come to you today. I pray that they would stop hoping in themselves, stop hoping in anything else, but Lord, they would place all of their hope fully in you. Lord, let that be true of all of us. No matter how long we have been walking with you or known you, Lord, let us place all of our hope in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.